0: Good morning, everyone. This is Mountain Radio Astronomy for the month of January. And joining me this morning is a new staff member at the National Radio Astronomy Observatory. We have with us this morning Dr. Jules Harnett, and she joins us from Australia. Um, Jules just started with us a couple of weeks ago, I guess not even maybe, two weeks ago? Two Two weeks ago. And um, while we were interviewing her and she was making the rounds here a few months ago, we learned something kind of fascinating about her, that she's one of very few people in this world who have been to the South Pole. And not only has she been to the South Pole, but she's wintered over at the South Pole. So I wanted to take the opportunity this morning to chat with her about her adventures down there at the bottom of the earth. You know, I was thinking the other day, we've got Jules Verne, Mm. And he took us to the bottom of the sea, and now we have you, Jules, and you've been to the bottom of the the world. world. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us what brought you to the South Pole and when you
1: were there. I was there uh, two years ago, and what brought me there was a strange set of circumstances. Basically, uh, I have a a colleague, and I'd run into him in Germany. (laughs) We both sort of ended up in Germany at the same time, and he gave this fascinating talk on his year at the South Pole, then the next year was the International Astronomical Union meeting in Sydney and uh, there was my colleague again. So we ran into each other again and he was giving a talk about again about the South Pole and I said an off-the-top-of-your-head comment like, I'm green with envy, how did you get to do that? And he said, come this way. <laughs> and um, basically somebody had dropped out of the team for the next year and they were desperate to find someone to go down and I went.
0: <laughs> what what kind of work were you doing down there? What was the team all about?
1: The team I'm referring to was uh, uh, well, actually, there were two of us responsible for operating and maintaining and fixing and scheduling and so forth the South Pole submillimeter telescope, which um, is operated was operated by um, the Harvard Smithsonian okay. Center for Astrophysics. So there's a
0: telescope on the bottom of the Earth, on the of bottom course, of the world.
1: You're (laughs) assuming it's the bottom of the world if you look at it the other way. um, (coughs) The Earth is a
0: sphere, after all. Well,
1: sort of. um, Well, actually, really, Australia and the South Pole are really
0: on the top. That's right. Mm. It just really Mm. does depend on your perspective. Uh, True. But But no matter what, the South Pole has to be the most inhospitable place on Earth. Why in the world would somebody (laughs) want to put a telescope there?
1: Well, this is a submillimetre telescope. It was originally built as a prototype to see if, the, uh, if it w- would work in terms of logistics and the cold temperatures. The reason people are interested in putting telescopes there is that it's the highest, driest, coldest place on Earth. And for submillimetre waves coming in, you, you'll be aware that they are uh, the waves between what? Um, sort of infrared and radio they just
0: well folks if you just get your ruler out and look at the metric <laughs> part of it you'll yeah. see a centimeter and, and it, then you'll see a, a millimeter and, and less than that uh, yes, is a millimeter so yes.
1: pretty short mm, waves pretty short waves and most of the time if you're here in Greenbank or anywhere else in where well, you know where people live hospitable places um, most of the incoming radiation is either absorbed by for example water molecules um, they absorb each little wave as it comes in and heat up a little bit, and then they jiggle a lot. Uh, or you you might find that uh, some of those waves are absorbed or, um, yeah, absorbed in terms of heating up little dust particles and so forth. So that means that if you can get above some of the atmosphere, that helps mm-hmm. because you're not sending your little submillimetre waves through too much of it. If the atmosphere is very cold, it helps because the molecules and particles that make up our atmosphere aren't vibrating as much, so you've got a better chance of getting these little sub waves through. And, of course, the other thing about the South Pole is that it's so cold that all the water vapour in the air, which is the major absorber of these waves, uh, is frozen out. Mm-hmm. One of the lovely things you see when it's summer there, of course it's summer for six months and then it's not. <laughs> right. And <laughs> you get summer for six months at the North Pole. One of the Interesting things in summer, when the sun is just going round and round in the sky, is you see this constant. We call it diamond dust. It's a constant. Uh, it's the water vapor freezing out of the air, and the sun shining on it makes Ooh. makes it look like all di- diamonds. Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> oh, it's just beautiful. And of course, that means that it's not in the air, and therefore the submillimeter waves can come through more easily. And what people don't often know is that the South Pole is actually at an elevation of almost 10,000 feet, so you're above a third of the atmosphere anyway.
0: Wow. Mm. So when you went down there to the South Pole, you said that you were a part of the team that was going to help operate this telescope. Well, part of the scientific team is yes. what I really
1: should have said. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's, of course, a number of scientific experiments that are run partly by various grants from the uh, National Science Foundation, which we should mention here, because they're the major supporter of science at the South Pole and some people are employed by the South Pole company that looks after all the other things as well, like housekeeping things and so forth. And they employ technicians to look after things like the seismology experiment and um, the Aurora experiment and various other things like that. And NOAA also has two-person team down there, and they look after um, ec- atmosphere mm-hmm. um, like experiments. Like the ozone. Like yeah. the ozone layer, and um, the weather, they put up a balloon every, twice a week. That's quite an experience. So
0: how long point. were you there? A year. A whole year. Mm. Do well, you arrive, I, I would imagine you would arrive when the weather is the balmiest it gets, mm-hmm. and then you... Stay through the winter parts, or tell that's me about that.
1: Yeah, that's essentially what you do. The South Pole is quite a different story from the two other United States bases in Antarctica, in that it's much colder. And so uh, you fly into McMurdo in a jet, a military jet. this This whole transport business is run by the New York Air National Guard. But you can't fly jets into the pole because um, everything's too cold. The temperatures are too cold and so forth. So they fly Hercules. What's that? It's a plane that's been uh, four propellers. And it's been around for, gee, they were in the Vietnam War. So they're they're oldies but goodies. But the thing is that they can actually fly in. they can deal with the the atmosphere being so thin because you're at Mm -hmm. 10,000 feet. So you... You spend three and a half hours or so going from the uh, base in the South Island of New Zealand to McMurdo, and then you travel on by Hercules, and that's a four-hour...
0: Do you uh, do that all at once? Do you receive some special training before you get dumped in the middle of this frozen <laughs> land called the Antarctica? Or?
1: Yeah. Uh, if you're going to winter over, you have to go to fire school and, and or uh, sort of a very advanced first aid school because uh, through the winter there's a medical doctor there and a physician's assistant. And if, for example, the building burns down, you're dead. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, we do have other quarters where you can all crowd in and wait for summer to come. But if there are people hurt, you also need the first aid team. And yeah, we, we had regular, at least every month, we had fire drills and emergency drills.
0: How many people are with you at the South Pole Station for this period of time? I guess the summer team is is bigger, and then it, you kind of get whittled down to you survivalist types for the winter months.
1: Yeah, well, uh, planes generally can't fly in uh, for eight months, so you're isolated. Um, the New York Air National Guard says it won't fly in until the temperature's above minus minus. 50 Celsius, probably it's really cold. 60 or yeah. so Fahrenheit. Of right. um, course, minus 40 is the same. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really restricts you to late October through to mid-February of the next year. Uh, the year I was there, they were just finishing, the Polar Services people were just finishing construction of a new station, which is going to be commissioned this year. Um, it needed to be done this year because this is the 50th anniversary of America's presence in Antarctica, specifically at the South Pole, I think um, Admiral Byrd uh, was the first person, to f- uh, one of the first people to fly into the pole and show that it could be done, and then they, they put a couple of containers there and the Navy ran it for years. So anyway, uh, all of which to say is that we had a large winter over contingent. It, it's normally around 30 people, but we had 77. Because construction was continuing,
0: the yes. inside work, I guess. Yes,
1: what they do is, as you just pointed out they do all the outside work the um, frameworks and outside walls and we have 18 inch thick walls (laughs) for obvious reasons and I think the windows are three panes thick they do all that the iron workers and so forth come in and do all that in the summer months when it gets up to can get up to um, minus 20 celsius though I don't know how they do it they're out there climbing up on these structures welding yes in minus 20 of course Understandably quite a lot of people who come down to do that work are from places like South Dakota and so forth where the weather does you know, their winter worst is the South Pole's Summer, summer best. best.
0: Yeah. And so then, these then, new facilities are does it contain everything? Your mm-hmm. laboratories oh. or you just your work your living quarters. It's Tell us about the facilities that you live in down oh, there.
1: The old ones or the new ones? Well. <laughs> Better <laughs> go for the new ones I guess. It's a quite a big station, very roomy compared to what we had before. In this station, it's unheard of before. Now we have a, each person has a room, and they have a um, an internet connection. We can only get onto the internet for ten hours max a day, because we rely for any communication they're on old satellites who have just wobbled out of their geostationary orbits above the equator and if they wobble enough they wobble up above our horizon.
0: Oh my goodness.
1: (laughs) And we grab them and and, uh, go on the internet and so that's a that's a really that's really new. There in the new station it's pretty much all self-contained there's a big galley Um, a lot of the terminology is still navy terminology or um, it's Sounds sort like nice, ship terminology, actually, yeah, yeah. because the Navy ran it. They ran, the, they ran the South Pole activities until the Soviet Union collapsed, after which to, obviously they were doing some um, training for people who might have to fight in Siberia or whatever. And so so you, mean, you
0: mentioned the word galley. I'm assuming you mean the big kitchen the where big kitchen. meals are produced, yeah. and do you take it's, turns? Does somebody do that for the, the staff, or how does that work?
1: They uh, provide, depending on who, the numbers over winter. They provide one or two chefs. We had two. They're really we often always think of them as being the most important people because however bad the weather is, and however, however much you might feel isolated or or whatever, uh, food always helps. And so we often say that the chefs or the cooks are the most important people on station. It's hugely important to morale. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's astonishing. I wouldn't have believed it. Yeah.
0: Okay, so uh does everybody eat oh, okay. in a
1: local yeah. in one area like well, a cafeteria setting or yeah. what is that like? Yes, it's a big cafeteria setting. And in fact, it's it's sort of it's very pleasant. It's a nice facility and the cooks do try their best. Of course, the big problem is that you don't have anything fresh. You you don't have any fresh fruit and Things like potatoes and eggs and so forth you don't have. But we do have a big hydroponic facility down there. Really? Yeah, and we've just built a new one. One of uh, one of my close friends, Randy, was the electrician in charge of putting that in. And it, the current one is run by the University of... Um, Phoenix in Arizona, I think, mm-hmm. and it's, uh, it's actually a test bed for what might be able to be used on Mars. They do a lot of that sort of testing at the pole because it's the, it's the most outrageous conditions on Earth, and if it'll work there, it'll probably work <laughs> on oh, the Moon neat. or Mars. Yeah. And it really, it's really producing extremely well now. They even pipe in um, carbon dioxide to help the plants breathe more mm-hmm. easily, and, mm-hmm. and if you're really tired and you actually get too cold, you'll go and sit in there, in the warm, and just sit there. And often people will just go and sit there because it smells like something. I know yeah. that sounds yeah, really silly. Right. But you're in an environment where nothing lives. Only right. these mad people <laughs> sitting there for the year. And you go into the, this growth facility or the greenhouse, whatever you want to call it, and it all smells really you don't know how plants smell. And you walk in there and you think, what's that funny, musty smell? Oh, it must be the plants. Yeah. You never notice it normally because we're surrounded by plants. And
0: particularly in such a dry environment oh, like that. Oh, I mean, it, I, oh,
1: everything bleeds. That well, I think that would be one of the hardest things I would say about the South Pole. Everything's dry. So all the little, you know, where you get cracks sometimes in your mm-hmm. fingers, anywhere... Where a crack might form, it forms and you bleed. Oh. You bleed and, you, and it's so sore. And, um, you know, luckily people had uh, Burt's Bees and Bag Balm oh, and all those yes. things. And you wear gloves at night and just slather your hands in these sorts of... And your feet. Um, oh, That was that was the hardest. It, was, it got so sore.
0: <laughs> so you lived in this one nice facility. Mm-hmm. How did you get to work?
1: Well, we had to walk um, because although there are... Um, Hmm, what are they called? What do you call them? Schemerbills? Um, what do you yeah, call them? Snowmobiles. Snowmobiles. I... Those sorts of things. Yeah. They won't operate effectively below about minus forty. So if it's minus seventy or well, or minus a hundred or something, you walk. How far? <laughs> how far did you have to walk? Um, our telescope, which was called Astro, I should give it its right name, Antarctic Submillimeter Telescope slash Remote Observatory, was about oh, I don't know kilometres. So let's say two thirds of a mile away, and we walked that. Uh, Every day.
0: How did you? I know conditions can be such that maybe visibility is bad. Mm -hmm. How do you get there if you if it's a dark,
1: and b snows blowing around or ice is blowing around? That's really bad because apart from all those things, it doesn't matter how you adjust all your gear. Somehow your goggles usually fog up pretty quickly. Yeah. And you find yourself looking out of one corner at the bottom or something. Um, It was quite a problem. um, for some people, uh, it was beautiful when the moon was up. It was like the moon The moon doesn't make the ice white and neither does the sun. It varies between a butter colour almost and almost a mercury grey colour depending on the angle. Oh, it's just amazing. Anyway, when the moon was up, it was great. You could just potter along and you could see everything and not a problem. When the moon was down, it was sometimes um, problematic, especially... On those days when we did have the very rare storms we had, um, and those storms usually come in when the wind's blowing in from the wet Sea, then you, you either stay in. If it's too bad, you stay in. You have to yes. be sensible. I mean, right. If you, you know, we did carry GPS, and we did always carry two-way radios, but we at the start of winter before the sunset, we put in flag lines, what are called flag lines, and they're bamboo poles, which are amazingly robust. Uh, and you put a rope along those. So you should be able to go from these poles with flags on the top. You should be able to hold the rope and go along those. Mind you, there are there are some stories where that didn't work too well. Right. My, one of my colleagues, um, he walked out and he was a bit, you know, I know where I'm going. <laughs> of course you do, you walked it every day. And then he wondered where he was, um, because he didn't seem to be getting any closer to the station. He could, uh, you see, that you can't see anything because, because we're doing astronomy and seismology and studying auroras, you're not allowed to have any lights shining so all the windows are blocked up. Um, and he suddenly realised that he wasn't going in the right direction and he realised that I would be coming out soon and I always had a, a headlamp and you have to cover those with red so you're not um, wrecking somebody else's observations of the aurora or something. And he very sensibly sat down and waited until he saw my headlamp, and then he came towards me. and, and I thought, I thought some idiot was playing a joke on me on the ice, because they do that. They sit in the dark and they they go rah, think sounds like monster, or in other, or, right. or the extraterrestrial also that's <laughs> right. <laughs> so that's that sorts of those sorts of things. Well, happen. that was yeah. good thinking. Yeah, very sensible. And
0: you know, on a w- one long straight line where you can't see what's at either end, I guess yeah. you could, well, right conceivably the, get mixed up.
1: Well, that's right. Yeah, yeah. He was down the end of the skiway somewhere, and I think he realised that because he saw some of the, um, some of the plane navigation bits and pieces down there. That say, take off now, or you're going to get stuck in, <laughs> 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 stuck in the loose snow. <laughs>
0: Did you make it off the island or you know, off Antarctica when you expected to? I know sometimes people are delayed. They think they're going to get to go home and they don't get to go home when they think they are.
1: You normally allow, certainly at the start of the season, and it happens all the way through really, the season being summer, um, you allow two weeks to get back to the States because something usually happens. It's very rare that you go straight through. I think it must be like, you know, sort of, I don't know, flying in the 1950s or something if the you know if the clouds came down too low and the pilot couldn't see the ground you didn't take off (laughs) Mm -hmm. um and usually the hold up well if the south pole's got a storm of course that's a hold up and the planes don't even fly in but you you usually get held up in mcmurdo because the pilots don't want to fly if there's any chance of them coming down in the middle of nowhere and for the first few weeks when the pole opens they fly in tandem Half an hour behind one another. So that they can... Mm -hmm. So if something happens, there's another plane nearby. Mm -hmm. And when you're in the planes, when you're flying, you have to wear all your gear, just in case. Oh, my goodness. Mm -hmm. Now, they give you special gear, don't they, Mm
0: -hmm. before you... Leave New Zealand yes. and then take that flight to the south, to the to Antarctica, because yes, they don't is. trust you to pack right.
1: I think that's right. <laughs> mm. That's
0: probably pretty <laughs> wise.
1: <laughs> uh, probably true. After you've been a few times, you get the message. But uh, yes, you go to the main centre, the polar your gear centre. right? the <laughs> clothing and distribution clothing distribution centre or something in um, Christchurch, where the main, that's where the base is that services the South Pole. The... Air National Guard have fun. They they fly down there every summer. When they finished at the pole, they fly back up to Greenland and do the northern summer from oh. Greenland. <laughs> they're
0: just busy all the time. Yeah. They yeah. have to have
1: a ball. Um,
0: what is your gear like? What do you have to have to survive at the South Pole? Well, the
1: South Pole, you have... Uh, generally, you wear a, uh, about three layers, I used to wear, um, under some very heavy sorts of... Um, they're almost like... Um, snowboarding pants, really thick pants, there's a certain, there are different um, uh, different types you can choose from, they give you a chance to choose, and if you, if they, it's a bit like, I imagine the army to be, you know, you sort of walk in and they go clonk, 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 and hear you are, this huge pile of stuff, and you don't know whether it's really going to fit, yeah, and, right. and you have to figure that out before you go, but there are backups at the South Pole if you drop your mitts or something or other. Um, So, long underwear, I always wore some um, fleece long underwear over the, uh, you know, that sort of t shirty material, long underwear, Mm -hmm. Um, and then the ski pants, and on top, uh, usually another something like maybe a hundred fleece or two hundred fleece, and then a proper north-faced fleece, and then a huge Canadian down parka, Mm -hmm. goose down parka, It's, it's all Canadian stuff as well, you can imagine. and well, they the must be good at it. <laughs> yeah, they are. We actually took our own boots, our uh, bosses or whatever you want to call it, our group, they financed our boots and we had Canadian Baffin boots, which are mm-hmm. they're up to about Very your knees tight. and they're about, I suppose, two or three inches thick and they've got all these the different sole. layers. Mm-hmm. Yes, and up the sides too.
0: So, uh Give us a typical day, if you would. I mean, it's, yeah. I want I want a typical winter day because it's dark all the time. Yeah, it is dark. So how yeah. do you,
1: so you... When does your
0: day start when it's dark 24 hours a day? That's a
1: good point. Um, somebody thought of this and decided that we should um, synchronize with New Zealand, seeing as the main southern base is there. Uh, breakfast is, is from 7.30 to 8.30, I think, in the morning. This is in winter. It's Mm -hmm. longer in summer because they run three shifts. They've got so much, so many supplies and so forth to bring in and so much to fix that they they work on a 24-hour schedule during summer because you've only got 14 weeks. Yeah. Um, So you you come and you have breakfast. If you can't sleep, people generally found that they either couldn't wake up or they couldn't sleep, and that's mostly the altitude, I think. You're Mm oxygen-deprived all the time. So if you can't sleep, like I couldn't, I quite often... Just got out of bed and went to help the cooks. Well, anyway, so you, you have breakfast, then you go to work. Um, now, I found that the best thing to do was to take it very slowly, getting dressed, because it is so, so, it sounds silly, but it's so easy to leave something behind, like your glasses, and then you can't read anything when you're out and you're trying to fix this telescope up. Right. Um, or you get out and you realise that you've forgotten to put one layer of gloves on. You Normally, most people wore two to three layers of gloves, sort of liners, and then an outer glove, and then maybe a mitt. Mm-hmm. Uh, that depends. You know. Yeah. So you did all that, and I was allowed about half an hour to actually get that right. And quite often, if we were going out for the day, so to speak, <laughs> um, uh, one of the cooks would have made us some... some lunch or something to take along with us or some soup, which would freeze on the way out actually. Right. Um, but we had a microwave out there. So you'd pick up that and, and try and make sure that you had everything, your headlight, your radio, your GPS. Uh, and I think most of us used to count it off because your head goes funny. It really does. You can't think after a while. And Is the there oxygen more oxygen
0: depriment. inside the facility than outside? No, they, they don't no.
1: Sometimes some people can't cope at all and they just have to fly them out. And if that happens, and you're supposed to be there for the winter, tough luck. Oh um, dear! But if you're someone, say a DA, they will maybe swap someone from McMurdo over. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so you get all that sorted out. You finally get dressed, and then it's a race to get outside because you're too hot. Right. And you got all You don't want
0: to sweat because that'll freeze. Cause maybe. Yes, and
1: you have. Um, we had special balaclavas with breathing apparatus and so forth. And it's. Hot. And so you walk out through the double doors, it's like having an airlock on a spaceship. Mm-hmm. So you shut one lot of doors to keep the heat in. Right. <laughs> it's the, and the refrigerator doors, It's you're you're living in this little warm bubble in a huge refrigerator, right. so you shut that door, <laughs> open the next door, and you think oh, thank God for that. <laughs> and then you walk out onto the ice, and um, then you start slogging your way across the ice, in, my, in our case, to the telescope. Um, and that it's hard work, oh, no, it sounds really silly, and when the daylight comes again, the sun comes again, you look at it and you think, that's no distance at all, what's a big deal? But sometimes it can take you 20 minutes, mm-hmm. oh, and sometimes it is just so beautiful, you just don't want to go inside again, and if you lie down on the ice, you don't get so cold, because the wind's not blowing so cold, often you'll lie down, and there's always an aurora. Oh. And, yes. and um th- at special times of the day you'll be aware that the aurora is in a ring around the south magnetic pole. Wow. And because of the rotation of the earth, that ring was over the south pole, shall we say. And it was just amazing. Anyway, so you'd finally get to the door and then we'd do our work. A lot of the first thing would be to check the doers, because we had um, very sensitive receiving equipment, most of which required liquid helium. Mm-hmm. And um
0: so not even the South Pole was cold enough right. for this electronics. That's sounds really
1: silly, doesn't it? No, we have to cool things down at South <laughs> Pole. <laughs> and some of the electronics is um, so sensitive, or the receivers are so sensitive, that you want um, them to be as cold as possible, as you'd understand, so they, don't, um, so they don't pick up the noise of all these jiggling electrons in the atmosphere. So first of all, you make them into the best vacuum you can, Mm -hmm. then you put a jacket of liquid helium around that, then you put a jacket of liquid nitrogen around that to partly, well to preserve the liquid helium really, I mean it just starts boiling off.
0: The scientists who had observing time or whatever Mm -hmm. projects Mm -hmm. That would be in your hands, or yes. one of the members yes. of the team we 'd have
1: an observing schedule, which we were supposed to um, implement, which we mostly did, but of course, you know there were things that went wrong, and lots of calibration work you know a lot of calibration work we had to do to make sure people 's observations were usable um, and tuning of receivers and all that sort of thing, plus a daily log to make sure that all the, that the um, environment inside uh, where the um, optical table and so forth was. Uh, it was okay and that the dewers hadn't boiled dry and that everything was working properly. So you do that, you do your daily log, you set up for the observation, hopefully the equipment is all working, otherwise you go into problem-solving mode, which was also extremely difficult because your head didn't work. You'd be standing there with a screwdriver and you think, now what am I going to do with this? It was really strange. I have
0: moments like that down here where there's plenty of air.
1: So I don't like it when they call it a senior moment. That right. is what really puts me on. <laughs> anyway, so you do all that and then um, then you, you might work on a project of your own and um, you go through the day like that. Uh, one of our big projects, we actually had to run in the coldest time of the year on purpose and we were out there for 16 to 18 hours a day. And then um, you might... If you got back early enough, you might watch a movie. Mm -hmm. There, there's a huge, you can imagine, library of um, DVDs and videos there. Or people, people do things. People ran courses. We had someone who'd been at art school, and she ran a course in how to draw figure drawing. And uh, one of our computer people ran a Cisco uh, network engineering course. And I ran an astronomy course because it's the South Pole, and you guys don't know much about the stars in the South Pole right, right, and um, people ran all sorts of little courses Um,
0: so with all that then uh, when it is time to go home and they won't let you stay for more than a year all at once will they don't you have to to leave for a while and then come back in yeah so were you ready to go or are most people
1: kind of ready for a break or I think it's harder on some people than others we go through an extensive sorry (laughs) medical and uh, as you can imagine psychological testing procedure and they say they weed out the worst and um, there's always somebody who has a really hard time and there's yeah always somebody um, I think most people want to leave but they don't except for the people who've really had it rough or in case of two friends of mine they decided um, they'd just gotten married and they thought this would be the perfect way to save up for their house if they went two years in a row and um, when they came out the second year, they came to visit me in Sydney, and they said it was the hardest thing they ever did to go two years the straight on year, together. Yeah. They'd only be they had their first wedding anniversary in the year I was there, so you know, they said it was really tough. <laughs> but some people, a Australian colleague of mine, he's been down there six, I think it is now winters running. Wow! They, they have a saying. They say first year you go for the adventure, second year the, you go for the money, and the third year you go because you don't fit anywhere else. So. <laughs> You just become a South pole Yeah, that's right, a pole yep. mm-hmm.
0: That's pretty neat. Well, it's been fascinating to talk to you about this. We're really happy to have Jules with us. She's going to be uh, using all of that expertise she gained down there in Antarctica to help astronomers do better research while they're here at the observatory. And um, we'll talk to you again, and please do when... You have that website updated. Let me know, and I'll give people the URL on a future broadcast.
1: Yeah, um, I can tell you also where it is at the moment, but it's probably better if I transfer it across, I think.
0: Okay. uh, Yeah, and I'm thrilled to be here too. Oh, we're happy to have you. (laughs) And thanks for joining us this morning on the show. I appreciate it. My pleasure.